Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. Today, I am so honored to have my dear friend, Elliot Rowe, on the show. Elliot, thanks for joining us. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so thrilled to let everybody know a little bit about Elliot. I met Elliot some time ago, actually as a personal coach for me, and we're going to talk a lot today about his gifts. Elliot is the world's best um, hypnotherapist, literally. like a, he, he helps people through lots of different skill sets and trainings um, around neuro-linguistic reprogramming and all kinds of different modalities. He's going to talk a little about his training and his help uh, with people with their self-actualizing and their self-improvement. But I'll tell you what, Elliot uh, was in one session. I felt like I got more than years of therapy out of him. And he hears that regularly. He's told me, he's told me this, um, Elliot has a real gift. Um, ultimately, he helps you realize your potential and what you can become. And I, I can't wait to talk about how the impact things have with me. But Elliot currently does private coaching, individual coaching for professional athletes and and um, executives of multinational corporations and leaders in the nonprofit sector. And he works with, um, you know, high performers and high achievers across different verticals. But he also does, in addition to that, a um, mastermind course uh, that we can talk a little about and how that changed my life this last time when I, when I went last year and how it just set me on a totally different trajectory. In addition to that, he also has a podcast, which we're going to talk a little about today for the general public. That can help with mindfulness and and you know getting in our body and overcoming some of the ways that we kind of get in our own way in our own head right elliot so thanks for coming today i'm so thrilled to have you thank you so much thank you for the kind introduction oh i'm so thrilled elliot why don't you start with sharing a little bit about your story i know you 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 share a lot about how you got into this work and it's because of your own fears you had to overcome yeah. which is kind of the best origin story right tell us a little bit about you and your background yeah, so I came from a different world. I was in um, solar energy investments at the time. I had a fear of flying, and it was pretty significant. So it was enough of a fear that um, I wouldn't fly long haul at all, and um, just getting on short flights would ruin the week. So, you know, I'd be terrified on the taxi on the way to the airport, that sort of thing. And it always felt like life and death. Um, I didn't understand where it was coming from, and someone recommended a hypnotherapist, and she managed to resolve it in an hour, um, and it completely changed my life. And what was interesting to me is the process that she used is, was so rational and um, some, something really clicked. So so I go into this session, I'm pretty skeptical because I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I won't be scared of flying after this. You know, it's something I define myself by. And um, we get into this very relaxed state. So it's not like stage hypnosis, it's like guided meditation. And she starts talking about memories of different times I felt scared and the feelings around the flights. And the initial memories that came up were like turbulence and things like that. And then we get to this root memory of uh, being at my grandfather's house as a small child, being shown a picture of a small private plane and being told it had crashed and killed his business partner. And wow. this was a memory I wasn't consciously aware of. Um, so I had an understanding now of why I would have an irrational fear of planes and why they would feel like life and death. Um, I felt different about flying after the session. And when I spoke to my parents next, I was like, hey, um, this memory came up. Is this real? Um, and they were like, yeah, you know, that happened. Yeah, the plane crashed and that guy died. And and I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't remember all of that. But I now feel completely different about flying. Um, and that opened up the world for me. I mean, I live in America now. and I genuinely wouldn't live in America. I'm English. You know, <laughs> like flying was a big deal. Um, and because of that, I decided to get trained as a hypnotherapist. And initially, it was just like, wow, this is super interesting. Um, you know, if I can help friends and families with their fears, I might be able to improve people's lives. 
And I started doing that on the side. I was sort of doing my normal day-to-day business. And then I really decided to move into what I loved and what I enjoyed. Um, and, and I made the switch at some point. It was just obvious that I was just, I was really getting a lot more out of doing the hypnotherapy than I was getting out of doing any investment work. And, um, and then from there, it sort of switched into high performance. So uh, I was introduced to the poker industry. Um, and I started working with poker players, um, and, and it went extraordinarily well. Um, they ended up winning over a hundred million dollars. Um, a lot of the major titles were won by clients working with me, and I became very well known in that industry. And along with that, I started working with UFC fighters, worked with a few champions, uh, worked with Olympians, and because of the work and the success I'd had in those industries, so in the poker, in the fighting, um, and with Olympians. I started to get recommended to CEOs of companies, founders of companies, because everyone's just the same. It's a self-sabotage holding them back. It's fears. It's, you know, not being able to do the things that they know they should do. And and the process works, whether it's a professional athlete, a professional gambler, a professional trader, or CEO of a company. It's where is this irrational behavior coming from? How can we then work through that and understand it so it's no longer triggering in the same way? So... Yeah, that's a two-minute synopsis of <laughs> my background in the oh, industry. Such a stunning career, and you know, I've, I've, as I said, I've been a beneficiary of your gifts, um, Elliot, and I've seen and met many people that have had their lives transformed by you. One thought that came to mind was when I thought about fears, like for example, fears of flying. Even though rationally, as a grown man, you could understand that statistically, I'm more likely to die in the taxi going to the air, you know, to the airport than to die on the plane, it doesn't help your lived experience. And until you went into the subconscious, this these memories that were baked in you somatically, you couldn't really overcome it. And that was the difference between, I think, working with you with therapy. I highly recommend therapy. Um, I'm not to put it down at all, but it, but it gave me, it had a certain utility at a certain point. Like once I had talked through and received, you know, context or patterns or diagnoses or whatever it may be to help me like work through my stuff there was a certain point where getting out of my head and out of the story and into my body like helped and I think today there's a big conversation about healing and about what's working you know our generation it it is destigmatized and needs to continue to destigmatize uh, poor mental health but what are your thoughts on the modality and why it works different than therapy why do you have these results can you share a little bit about um, what it is about what you're doing that's so, I guess, magical. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really just a case of um, hypnotherapy is a subconscious modality. So with talking therapy, and again, I highly recommend talking therapy, and I work on performance more than mental health. So, you know, my everything that I'm giving context for here is, you know, this is for someone looking to improve their life, usually who's having, you know, a good, successful life, but there's some areas they want to improve and they want to dig into those. Um, but talking therapy is a conscious modality. So you'll be sitting with a therapist and you'll be talking through your issues and you'll be trying to get an understanding of where they came from. Uh, hypnotherapy is a subconscious modality. So as I say, you get into this very relaxed meditative like state and then the subconscious becomes dominant over the conscious mind. So things that you weren't aware of, like why the subconscious is defending you in certain areas, where it's creating the barriers, why it's making things difficult, um, that you is sort of it, it comes to the forefront and you, and you can understand that and like i said like the memory i described these things pop up or we'll be talking to the part of them um that's holding them back from success and looking at why it's creating anxiety or why they don't feel like they're enough no matter how much money they make or or whatever it might be but because you're communicating directly with the subconscious it's a much faster process um because Unfortunately, most of us, you know, we have a good idea of what we're supposed to be doing and we could have the logical discussion with another person. So if you say, hey, you know, I could easily say to someone, you shouldn't be scared of flying. Um, it's safer than the taxi ride on the, on the way to the airport. But the problem is if they, they have a trauma from their past, it doesn't matter that it's safe, safer. Um, they're, they're not going to be able to make a change. And, you know, in the same way I could say it, you know, I, I, would, I would be feeling a, a visceral response. And, you know, that's why people are scared of spiders or whatever it might be that can't harm them, but but they have these visceral responses. And where I'm usually helping people with this is when it's holding them back somewhere in their performance. So 
uh, if we take it to a business perspective, like why aren't you firing the employee that you know you should fire? Um, why aren't you making the sales call? Um, for executives, for, for founders of companies, a lot of the time it's, you know, why aren't they seeking out investors? Why are they struggling making the calls to investors, having those meetings? Um, and in that instance, a lot of the time it's rejection. And, the, you know, a founder of a company is often, they're in the dominant position most of their day. And they've actually got to reach out and ask for money. And that's when they're not in the dominant position. And that's extraordinarily uncomfortable. And then we start working through that, and then we can see that there have been things that have happened in their past that make that particularly triggering for them, and that's why it's hard for them to um, to have those meetings where actually the most important meetings for the business, and sometimes they get pushed back, and unfortunately sometimes they're pushed back too far, and the, the businesses don't survive because the money doesn't come in fast enough. Wow. And just the idea that you can have that empathy for these high performers and understand that they have these underlying root causes for some of their behavior... I think sometimes I know, you know, I, I think we can tend to people that make things look easy. We can tend to not give them a lot of grace. We're like, well, you're killing it at life. You know, you're already in the world series for poker or whatever. I've met some yeah. of your world series champions <laughs> um, at your, at your mastermind. And, you know, you just say, gosh, they they have the, the world by its tail. Like they're doing great. Right. But everybody has parts of them that they have to learn to integrate and love and heal and work through. And, to realize more. And I, I know that you just, you were such a gift to me. So being really vulnerable, like I, which, you know, I, I, you I I'm just going to full disclosure, really vulnerable. Like when I first spoke to you, I was still working in the nonprofit sector exclusively. And I was struggling a lot with my mental health. I was struggling with high, high functioning depression. And you, you were so unbelievably validating and saying that like, this is really human. This is really normal. You're not broken. And it didn't feel like someone just coddling me. It felt like someone who backed it with lots of experience, lots of research, like a practitioner that like understands human psychology. And um, you really destigmatized some of the darkest thoughts I had, some of the despondence that I was experiencing, some of the questions about is life even worth living. I mean, those, some of those really horrible things to admit to ourselves that bring shame um, and the thoughts that would come at their worst, you know, those ideations. And you would be like, no, everybody feels this at some point. People, this is a human experience. And that doesn't go to say that I wasn't struggling with mental ill health. Like I actually did have to get real care and take care of my mental health, but just to, to destigmatize it and make me feel so um, safe. And you were, you're so good at holding people accountable while giving them tremendous love and grace. How do you, how do you juxtapose those two with like, Hey, you can do better. And I'm a coach and like, let's push past these boundaries while making them feel so safe. Um, Yeah. That's really hard. Yeah. I mean, and I I do wonder with, with this work, um, I, I've been very fortunate. I've had extraordinary results over the years. Um, and I think it's a combination of um, it just being fortunate with personality profile and and how I am and how I've been brought up and, and sort of the way that I am with people in my rapport. And then truly just number of hours of work. Um, I've done an extraordinary number of sessions. So I've done around well, over 15,000 hours of sessions with high performers now. Um, so there's not much I haven't seen or heard about or worked through. Um, and, and certainly when it comes to working with high performers, a lot of the time people in my sort of industry, they'll work with a small number of clients and, and that's the way that they work, but then just not getting the same number of hours in. So I think just truly there's the, the, the brute force of huge numbers of hours per week working with high performers um, has helped me really you know, shape my craft. Um, and then it's the... I mean, this is connected to that as well, but it's seeing that it doesn't matter if someone's a high performer, they're still a human. And I've yet to meet the perfect human, including myself. You know, we all have our issues. We all have things to talk about. We all have areas of life where we are struggling. And, you know, the people with the perfect relationship are struggling with their finances or the people with great finances are struggling with a relationship or a parent or a whatever it might be, or fear of flying, you know, whatever the direction. Um, and it's really just having some empathy for the fact that a lot of people, when they come to me, they, they literally don't have anyone to talk to because like you said, um, they're in a world where they're the successful one. So they're the, they're the sibling who did well. They're the very successful sibling and they feel awkward saying, actually, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm successful, but I'm still struggling mentally. 
I'm still struggling to pick up the phone in this situation. I'm still feeling insecure about how my partner feels about me. I still can't make it to the gym even though I know I should be working out and looking after my body, but some part of me feels that I don't deserve to be healthy. You know? Um, and, and so I think it's just an understanding that people are people and... Um, yeah, it's there isn't a there is no happy ending. I mean, it's a bit of a sad way of putting it, but there is no like there's nothing you can do that past that point your life is just done. So, you know, when I've worked with world champions in different activities, you know, there's this, hey, but you're world champion in X and, and it's like that's still a human being who has issues. Um, or someone who becomes extraordinarily wealthy. It doesn't fix all of your problems. It it makes it easier to find the resources to work on those issues. Um, but there isn't a, you know, happy ever end ever after, you know, you're good from now on, now that you've hit a hundred million dollars, like life is happy and there's never a problem. It's just, it's just not the case, you know, something happens and, and you have to deal with it. So, so yeah, I think it's a combination of personality profile, the work that I've done on myself and, and then just thousands and thousands of hours of, of dealing with people, um, yeah, who were, who were just trying to, trying to get better, even though they're already doing extremely well. That is so important that people understand there's no point where you really arrive. There's like an ongoing journey, right, of peaks and valleys. And, um, you know, I came to your incredible mastermind, and I'd love you to share a little bit about when you do those, how people could part participate in that and or with your coaching. But um, and, and maybe I'll pause there and like, share that. If somebody wants, after listening to this or looking into you more, and they want to work with you, how do they do that? And what are the different capacities in which they can engage with your skills at? So I have a, my, my website is my name, elliotrow.com. Um, and there's an application for my website. And I also have a, a number of coaches who I've trained as well. Um, so we have people who can help, help at almost any price point who I've trained. But um, if you're a high performer and you're listening to this and you want to work with me, um, you can go on there and fill out the application. It's elliotrow.com. Um, and yeah, and we'll reach out and we'll set up a consultation and we'll see if I'm a good fit for you and you're a good fit for me um, for coaching. Um, but it, it really is that simple, um, yeah, to to try. Um, and then the mastermind is, I, I run it twice a year. Um, as you say, you you came to one um, the other year. It was wonderful to have you there. And what I do is I put together, it's usually a group of my clients and a few people sort of around, usually people I know or, or within a circle or somebody knows um, and we run a hot seat mastermind over four days where all of these people, usually from different industries who are top performers in, in very different industries. So, I mean, we've had, yeah, just did, you know, from people running space companies to yeah, Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champions to, as you say, professional gamblers and, uh, founders of other companies, you know, it's just an interesting group. Um, and we'd run a hot seat mastermind where everyone goes to the front. And they talk about their issues and then they get to hear all of this you know, quite different views on, on what these different high performers from different industries um, they feel they should do with their lives. And I just find it a lot of fun because um, it, it's rare to be able to be in a room of people who they might have a completely different take on life than you, but they're still performing at the top level of whatever it is they're doing. And that's where I find it. It just creates some some very interesting thought processes because usually when you go to an event like this, everyone's in the same industry. So everyone's a doctor or everybody's in e-commerce or, or whatever it might be. Um, but because of you know my eclectic list of clients and contacts, um, it ends up being this sort of interesting mix of, of people and ideas and concepts. So yeah, I run it. I find it really fun. I run it a couple of times a year in Utah, and I really enjoy it. Oh well, it was so life changing, and I know that term can get thrown around, but legitimately for me, I mean, instant like total trajectory. In fact, my job at Capita and me being on this podcast today is because of that uh, mastermind. What what happened was during the hot seat, my big issue was this wrestle of two things, and I'm so happy to to share. I mean, um, I think. You know, I got to be vulnerable if I really want people to like, you know, gain the most value out of our conversation. Right. Um, but mine was, you know, a dynamic of being the primary breadwinner as and, and as a woman in my family um, to a husband I adore and love so much and how that is played out in my life and how I want to, you know, work through that. And secondly, um, 
you know, like come from the nonprofit sector where people are paid very poorly and um, people are begrudged, you know, being paid well to do this work. Um, there's a demonization of, of paying people well in this work that has come from some archaic, archaic thinking that I've tried to challenge. And yet, even though I did very well, like exceptionally well, probably in the very top 1% of the nonprofit sector in terms of remuneration because of my success in fundraising and the scale and caliber of clients and projects I'd worked on, I was doing really, really well compared to most in my shoes. It still felt limiting and difficult and exhausting. And I was on this um, treadmill, I felt like, as a in, in the sense that I had a consultancy where there was no equity being built. I, I couldn't make money in my sleep. I wasn't building anything that was like a true business that could be sold for 2x or 3x. I was my business and I traded my time. Even though at a high level, I hadn't figured out a way to like actually see long-term residual income of any kind. And so anyway, I got in front of this amazing group of human beings. And first of all, I got to say, uh, I think I, w- I, did, I was in the second day or third day. I got to watch other people in the hot seat first, which was a real gift. They were the most beautiful people. I fell in love with everyone so deeply. The more they showed their rawness and their quote unquote darkness or their pain or their struggles, the more I just fell in love with them and was mesmerized and enamored with their uh, beauty and their heroicness and the totality of who they were was so stunning to me. I just don't know how anyone would leave there and not just fall in love with humanity um, because you did such a good job helping people, you know, really show up, really show up and get to be seen. There's, I think it's the most exquisite experience as a human to have that happen. But I got up there and they were so amazingly affirming, but they were also like, duh, like just do this thing. And they gave me permission to just go into the private sector and say that I can still do good. I can still be a part of impact, but I can still make a ton of money. Those are not mutually exclusive. Like they just were like, you know this, you made a documentary about this. Why are you begrudging yourself the very thing? It was like so silly how kind of obvious it was when they re- when they all reflected it back to me to have a whole group of people that I just fallen in love with that I trusted that they gave me the grace to hear my feedback um, was so profound and I immediately left your 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 retreat and called Michael with like the founder of Capital was like hey wh- how can we work together you you're a baller you make a ton of money you do great work for people you know how to help people make money what can we do here and he was like are you kidding i didn't think you'd ever leave what you were doing like and so yeah it was like my first call in the private sector to like figure out a a way forward anyway and that came because of you so it's amazing i'd love to hear what you think about why do you think these masterminds work so well or that feedback you know why is it so powerful that um when we hear it from others we, we when you know it's just so plainly put well one thank you so much i mean it's it's so fun to that's how I see it as well. So it's great to hear you know someone someone as a guest say the same thing. Um, I I think really I mean if you look at your specific situation there, um, if everyone in the room um, had been working in the nonprofit industry or working in charities, you would have got completely different advice. And, and even with the best meaning, no one would have seen outside of the box. And you were in a room of, as I say, different people from different places. And I mean, I think it was the VC guys who were like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, it was. But, yeah. They're like, make a bunch of money, girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but this is but this is why, as I say, I think that's where the power of the event comes from, because um, it was powerful for them to hear from you and talking about charity and doing good. And I know some other people who were at that same event have changed the direction of their lives and what they're doing. Um, because of what you were speaking to in terms of giving back and charity. And and that's where I think those events can be really powerful because, as I say, you're getting high performers who have very logical arguments and, you know, a rational thought process, but they might be coming at life from a completely different angle. And, and I think it's, the, it's there that we can, you know, fill in some of the gaps that we wouldn't be able to fill in if, you know, if I was in a room full of coaches, we're probably all going to think the same thing. And um, it changes things when you add in some athletes and some VCs and some people running <laughs> charities and whoever else, you know, we, we managed to get in the room that particular time. But I, I do think it's the mix that's powerful. Yeah, the diversity of thought was profound. I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a big part of it. I also think a part of it is the stage that you set. You know, maybe, you know, one of the things that I remember you doing is this decontamination process where we like, get really clear with what things we want to leave behind about ourselves, you know? And I don't know how much high performers that have so many inbound 
demand signals in their lives. I don't know how much they stop and take the time to do that kind of introspection. For me, it often comes when it's painful enough, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is going sideways. Why, why do I do the things I do? Why, you know, but, but this was like a very intentional kind of setting that you created. Yeah. And I think it's hard again, you know, high performers live busy lives most of the time. Um, you know, and if they find some quiet space, they find a way to make it busier. Like that's, that's usually the, the, the problem that's happening there. And, um, and that's why we run this as a retreat. And that's why we run it as a, it's four nights there rather than just a two day treat. It's so that people have the time to actually to truly disconnect, relax, network, as I say, and have these conversations and really take some time to say, you know, is my life actually going in the right direction? Are these things actually making me happy or am I following a path because it's been my habit to follow that path? And, and I think space is needed for those sorts of deep reflections. Uh, because, you know, in the noise of the day-to-day -day and emails coming through and phone calls and having to make lots of decisions, de decision fatigue is, is sort of a, it's a real thing. And you just don't have the space to, to make the big shift like the shift you're describing of completely changing industry and lifestyle. And, and that's a hard thing to do without the space. And even if you'd had a conversation, let's say, over a meal with someone regarding exactly the same topic... I think it would be much more difficult for you to actually say, hey, this is actually correct for me. I'm going to start making the calls. I'm going to see what happens if I change the direction of my life. I think you're right. I think they gave me a lot of courage. And, you know, by certain means, I don't have all my life figured out. I'm still like, you know, every day. Yeah, I'm still figuring it all out. But it did. It did relieve tremendously the financial pressures in the, in the interim. And more than anything, just helped me see that I that there are solutions to give hope for when I come in contact with a new problem. How can I think new thoughts? How can I get, like you said, resources to think differently? Um, so Elliot, when, when you talk, you, you touched on something really personal for me, but this idea of taking time, being quiet, you do a meditation, by the way, your voice is so dreamy, that British accent, you sound, it's like listening to chocolate, right? And so tell me a little bit, why the importance, what have you, what have you learned about through research about of course, meditation. I know your beautiful wife, Ali, she, she meditates for hours and hours a day. Um, tell me a little bit about what is the power of meditation? I mean, it's become a popular thing in the zeitgeist of our culture, but what can you tell our listeners that maybe haven't given it a try and feel intimidated by it? What is it about? And yours is more of a guided, which I find really powerful because I struggle. I've, I got diagnosed at 39 with ADHD and I have really high functioning ADHD where it, I have quite an organized life in certain ways. But my brain is constantly going. going. So it's not in my yep. body, but it's in my brain. So it makes me hard to sleep. I run more anxious and more neurotic that way or whatever. But um, understanding how to quiet the mind is such a skill. Can you share a little bit about what you've learned about that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the first thing to say is you described it correctly. It's such a skill and, and it is a learned skill. And usually the biggest issue people have with meditation is getting started and it not feeling like they think it's supposed to feel. So, you know, a simplistic mindfulness meditation exercise is sitting quietly and following your breath. And then as a thought comes in, go over back to your breath again. And that's like the most simplistic version of meditation. So that's all you need to do. And people get caught up because they say, hey, but the thoughts keep coming in. I can't meditate. But the truth of it is, is the thought coming in is actually the rep. So that is the lifting the weight and then the moving it back to your breath is that's the exercise that you've done that you're taking control of your mind and you're refocusing your mind. And as you get better at it, there aren't going to be so many reps in each meditation session. So it's actually at the beginning when you think you're terrible at it, you're actually getting an awful lot of improvement because that's where you're getting the most practice. And then as you can clear your mind for longer periods of time, there are actually less reps because your your mind isn't getting distracted quite so frequently. So I, I think that's a helpful way to view meditation for people stepping into it. And like you said, you know, if you're struggling with um, looping thoughts at night, things like that, this gives you a way of taking control. Um, we have an app called Primed Mind that you can download on your phone and there's a ton of stuff on there that's just for free, so you can try using it if anyone's interested. And they're guided meditations and hypnotherapy scripts. Um, so that's a very similar sort of process, um, but they're set for a particular intention. 
So um, rather than just mindfulness meditation that I just described, where you're just looking to clear your mind and learning how to refocus, um, this will be a, hey, to help you get to sleep at night, to help you improve your confidence, to help you deal with your relationship in a more rational way, to help with um, business sales calls. So we have hundreds of different audios in the app um, to help you optimize different areas of your life. But it's just a case of a state change and a refocus. So by utilizing these techniques, you can change the way that you're feeling and then you can change the way that you're acting. Um, so it's, it's just sort of a, a shortcut, a hack towards basically being able to perform in the way that you want to perform. That's really cool that you offer that to the general public and um, because not everybody can afford your services. You are not cheap and that's totally I'm okay not, because yeah. the value you give is so instrumentally huge that people are like way willing to pay it. And like, as you said, you, your clients tend to be those who can afford it. It's all about um, relative value proposition, right? Like if somebody, like I, I think that all the time whenever, because as I've been around extreme wealth in a lot of my career, um, it can be very confronting because I've also been around extreme poverty. And I've seen people living on a dollar fifty a day, and then spend time with multi-billionaires. And money is kind of just this relative measuring value proposition. I mean, somebody's time as a billionaire, maybe to take a private jet somewhere, means they'll make more money in that time frame if they weren't sitting in a line and going through the yeah. Then it costs. Or somebody, you know, uh, somebody looking at somebody who's like, wow, how disgusting they spent that much on I don't know an outfit, and yet. Our clothing from Target, I love Target by the way, um, Target, you know, can be uh, offensive to a person who your $30 shirt is more than they make a month in their salary. You know what I mean? So it's it's really common for us to like judge wealth and, and influence up, but we forget that we have a lot of influence. In fact, if you make more than $60,000 a year, you are the top 1% of humankind for what net worth. Isn't that insane? $60,000 US. It, you know? it's, in, it's incredible. I think it's very hard for us to picture or even understand. Um, and and I think a lot of the things you're describing there are actually some of the work that I do um, it, it are these money conversations. So one of the biggest caps I see in, in people at, in, in different areas is having a wealth cap, like an amount they feel that they deserve. So a level of success that they're allowed to achieve and then we're looking at you know from from their past why why they believe this and um oftentimes they're round numbers so the way to know if this is something that you're struggling with is if over a number of years your business is hitting the same level over and over again um probably there was a potential for growth and you're probably self-sabotaging it um and it doesn't matter if it's a hundred thousand a million five million ten million whatever it might be um we see these repeating patterns of self-sabotage where they hit this number, they drop down, they get back to the number again, they go up a little bit, they find a way of blowing the money, they drop down, and they're staying within this comfort zone. It's the comfort zone of that individual. So it's like a thermostat of wealth that they can accept. And then as we explore this, um, it can be linked to the way parents were speaking about wealth, um, you know, at the dinner table as, as a child. So, you know, the rich are evil, if you've got money, it's because you've stolen it. It's not deserved. Um, you know, some of the the language you're using regarding, you know, what it, if you know if people flying a private jet is moral or immoral, those sorts of things. Um, and then an interesting one I've seen a number of times was um, guys really having an issue with making more money than their dad ever made. So this strange power dynamic of if they make more money than their dad did, in some way they take over the role or they're taking something away from their dad. And they don't want that shift in power, so they're, they're holding themselves under their dad's highest year. And I've actually seen that come up quite, with quite a lot of different clients over the year. And I, I always find that quite an interesting one, that, that that can become a psychological clap. What do you see with women? Because and, and, that was one of my issues, right? Is this, I grew up in, a, in, in an LDS family, LDS community, and come from a world where women, the expectation is for women to be nurturers and at home. And not being you know financially in the workplace that's absolutely shifted in our generation almost nobody can have it's very it's very difficult for people to have um single income families anymore and a lot of people a lot of women are also finding a lot of joy and self-fulfillment in pursuing a career and outside of um, the obligations of the family and home 
Um, you know, I remember when I first started having paradigm shifts about this, where I was like, I'm not a bad mom if I pay someone to clean my bathrooms. Just because I'm not doing it doesn't mean I'm not a bad, I'm not a good mom. But I had this belief system because every mom, my world, clean their own bathrooms, you know what I mean? Whatever it may be. And starting to realize that it's it's a matter of allocating that value, value and understanding, hey, I can spend this time cleaning my house, doing laundries, or I can hire an assistant to do X, Y, Z or pay for these services and then have more time to build wealth or do these other things and or spend time with my kids even, right? Like the trade-offs of time and managing time. But what have you seen with women? You have you have a decent amount of women clients. Do you find that they struggle more than men with this dynamic? Um, the interesting dynamic I've seen with women is actually the earning more than the partner. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I've had a number of women who quite clearly have self-sabotaged um, because they're scared. And oftentimes it's before marriage and they're mm. scared that the the man won't want to marry not not at a conscious level so all of this is subconscious so i just yeah. but, but as we dig into why they're sabotaging themselves at work or they're not looking for the promotion or they're not doing whatever it might be um a, a lot of the time it's this fear that if they overtake the man they're going to make him insecure and that they're going to become a, a worse prospect as a wife like again that it would change the the dynamic of the relationship if they're if they're the main breadwinner and um and a lot of the time that that has stalled them in their careers so there's this and it's not a conscious thought it's this subconscious program that they just find themselves not doing the things they know they should be doing not asking for the pay rise not asking for the promotion perhaps if they're in you know something like sales not making the sales calls they should be making like doing enough to keep the job but making sure they're not doing enough to actually reach the peak potential um, because they're scared the peak potential will make them less attractive rather than more attractive. Interesting. Do you find, um, was it the word hypergamous? Is that what you told me? This word you were saying? Yeah, that, that one's not me. <laughs> okay. There's like a word, and I might be, I might be messing this word up, but it, it's a word for like w- women are more comfortable marrying someone equal to their financial station and above, and men are more comfortable marrying um, under or e- equal or under, but not above. And that's like just generally um, part of uh, probably, yeah, on average, part of our social construct, if you will. How? What advice can you give couples that face that? Because that is becoming more and more common that women are out earning their their partners. What what, what um, advice? I mean, the can first thing give? I'd say, you know, from from a very biased perspective, is to do the mindset work. Like this isn't a real thing. It's well, not actually relevant. Who's earning more money? Like as we said, money doesn't solve all of the problems. <laughs> It's just, you know, how much you get paid for your time. It's by, by giving it emotional, you're giving it emotional weight for some reason. And yeah. you want to explore and work through where that excess emotional pressure is coming from. Um, but if you're in a situation where, you know, your wife can make much more money than you, you certainly don't want to hold back that potential for the, for the sake of holding back that potential. Um, but I do think it's, these are, as I said, they're like, emotions that are getting in in the way of logical decisions and uh, and it's really the same with with everything that i work on um i say if you if you don't know what to do you should be getting a coach or a mentor to teach you what to do and if you know what to do but you can't bring yourself to do it then you should be working with a mindset coach because more technical knowledge isn't going to help so, you know, rationally, if we look in at this situation, um, so, hey, you know, my wife is dramatically more successful than me. Our life is better because of it, but I don't like it because I'm the man. Like, rationally, you should know that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, like there yeah. is a, yeah. so rationally, it should not be said, but there's an emotional and, um, as you say, that, you know, society has created constructs that create emotional pressures on this. So it's a how can we work through the emotional pressures that are created so that it's not so painful and we can work out whatever is the best thing for our family. And it might work out that it is better that the the wife doesn't work and she stays at home, but it should be coming from a completely rational perspective rather than a perspective of this equals bad, this equals good. It's just, no, if we talk together, if we're working together, we should come to a sort of a rational, logical decision as what we believe is best for our family and if you know she's making more than he is and that's the most rational thing that should be absolutely fine rather than a pitch battle um in my mind again all of this is completely subjective but that's that's the way i view it is we should just always be trying to 
remove irrational emotion and then coming to what we believe would be the most sensible thing we would say to somebody else if it wasn't us. What would you say about um, biology and psychology and, and again, social constructs of, you know, we're all just the amalgamation of the world around us, our lived experiences, our parents, their trauma, the community, you know what I mean? So many macro uh, impacting dynamics that are fluid, that, that influence who we are. We have a certain sphere of influence, but we also are kind of acted upon as we decide what to act about. But, you know, something I've been really studying because it's something I'm having to work through and still in the middle of is this desire to be provided for as a woman. There's a, there's an innate belief that is a, that, that, you know, a, a man can protect us because in the wild, let's be honest, we get a fist fight. You could punch me out. Whereas my husband might give you a go, you know, like, I mean, there's a physical limitation to my size, my bone density, my capacity physically to protect myself. And that translates in the physical world. And I think it comes from evolution from men used to go and kill and protect from being you know, raped and pillaged. They used to protect uh, from predators, um, either other humans or animal wildlife, um, the elements. There's just a, a, a capacity in the physicality of men that's different. And then that translates into day in our body and our lived experience of like men protect. And then I think about in the financial world and in the business world, even though I picked charity as the sport that I played the first part of my career. Now I'm doing more of this commercial stuff, which is a fun learning experience. And I'm actually able to do a lot of good, more good than I think I've ever been able to do as a result of the freedom. But one of the things that I thought about was, um, you know, it's a high contact sport, entrepreneurship and business and being a high performer, whether you're doing it as an athlete, like very obviously a high contact sport. But I mean, the psychological impact of having relationships, having difficult conversations, putting yourself out there, failing, you know, um, being blamed. I mean, my goodness, if you're ever going to choose to be a leader, you will get ridiculed and blamed and point, you know, people, it is a very often thankless uh, role to be a leader. And if you're a servant leader, especially, right, because you don't make it about you, 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 if you do it right, if you're really doing it right, it is truly um, a giving role. Um, but as we're doing all this, I'm just sitting here thinking, I feel like men sometimes because they're more, they, I'm going to say something might get me canceled, but like men tend to be a little more rational and in when they work out certain cause and effect problems, it's my experience. And so in the business world, I often find myself being envious of the way men can just be like compartmentalize a relationship or emotional thing. It feels like they have an ease with it. It could just be my perception, but it feels like the struggle to be rational at sometimes is, is harder with the emotionality and it could be just my my well, I, I think it's just different skill sets. So that there's this like um, that, I mean, there's obviously an evolutionary side. I, I believe again, mm -hmm. you know, I believe there is. Mm -hmm. um, right, I believe too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, um, you know, as you're describing that, you know, hey, women potentially, you know, there are going to be certain situations that that spike emotions in a different way. But I think from a business perspective, we, we have to look at there, there are strengths that women bring that men can't bring. And I think that's especially true when it comes to empathy and rapport and network building. And, and it's a case of, you know, all of us have our strengths and all of us have our weaknesses. And, and how can we best fill, fill the spots in the team with the best players to, to do the role that they can do? Um, and I, I mean, I think sort of you were saying earlier with the... Um, you know, hey, wanting to be provided for or wanting to be protected. I think I think potentially you could shift the mindset of obviously physical protection is something that is is attractive to women and sometimes necessary, as you said, you know, men are bigger than women generally. You know, that's just typically true. Um but when it comes to provided for, um I, I don't think that's as necessary in the modern world um as it used to be historically. So there is some of this unlearning where um, we're now in a world where you you can make very you know there there are large sums of money for anybody to make if they have the right skill set, and you don't uh, I would say you don't want to be holding yourself back because of a preference of having someone else providing it. Um, so I think you know that's a, that's a useful thing to work through if if that's ever something that you're feeling is um, you know there's there's potential here and and it doesn't mean you're not being protected and I th I think it's I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of, uh, I wouldn't link protection and provisions as the same thing. Mm. 
So mm, I think you can still be protected if you're not provided for. And I think splitting those two um, could, could be a very useful thing to do. So helpful. In fact, you know, my husband, who's the best thing that ever happened to me, and I absolutely adore, um, you know, he provides for me in so many emotional ways that I don't think anyone else could. I mean, he is so patient and charitable and good and, you know, such a good father and such a good um, friend to me and has supported me in so many, many ways that oftentimes when I'm at my peak stress and in my, you know, day-to-day outputs, I feel like, oh my gosh, this is too much. Someone take this from me, right? And then I try to like follow the rabbit hole of like, how did I get here? How do I fix this? And, you know, what can I do? Or anybody who shares my situation or a situation that might be parallel in some way, where when you know, like, when I'm lucid and I'm well and I'm actually in my body and coming from a place of love, I mean, I'm just so deeply grateful and so happy in my marriage and so great for my husband. But then these moments where we get triggered, we get scared, and then we like freak out and we start to spiral into different stories or narratives. What are ways we can hack that and stop it if it's a pattern? Because I think we uh, all have well, it, right? Like husbands well, might think, say, well, my wife nags me, so she doesn't yeah, appreciate yeah, everyone has. That it, might be like, their story. Yeah, yeah, they might have a different story. I, I mean, you just you just want to accept that again. These are parts of the human experience. Like, how do we stop well, having a rational thought? We're not going to stop having a rational thought. Um, you know, perhaps the the way to sort of work around it is warning your husband that sometimes you go through these storms, and the storm's going to pass, and he doesn't need to be worried. Mm, you know, it's that's beautiful. It, it's not that we're necessarily ever we can reduce things, and with the sort of work that I do, we're not looking or not not expecting things to go to a zero. So it doesn't go from, you know, my fear of flying was 10 out of 10. It's now probably a three out of 10, but it's not zero. If I'm on a crazy turbulent flight, that's like a roller coaster, I'm not comfortable, but it's normal because other people aren't comfortable too. And I think a way of looking at these things is, are you feeling these intense emotions all the time? And is it damaging your relationship or is this happening every now and again? And it's just one of the natural storms of being a human being. And if it if it's a natural storm, it's I think it's just as I say, letting your family know sometimes a mom has bad days. And I don't mean anything by it, and I'll love you tomorrow and I love you today, but I might not be completely rational a hundred percent of the time because I'm a human being. And and I think that's all really that that needs to be said in that there shouldn't be an expectation of perfection of being a happy three hundred and sixty five days a year. It's can we know that these emotions are things we're passing through, even if in the moment it feels very real and very dramatic? Um, we should sort of have an understanding that, you know, we're going to get through it. And so long as everyone else knows that, hey, this is what happens sometimes, nothing's meant by it, then it, it doesn't really matter so much. Um, one thing to be very aware of with this is you usually see these types of emotions spike um, when everything else has drained you. So when you're being attacked on multiple fronts. So, you know, business is particularly stressful, there's some other issue in the family, and you're not looking after yourself. So sleep, if you can have sleep as a cornerstone to your life. Um, so, I mean, I take my sleep extraordinarily seriously. I've had a sleep coach. I've really worked on on making sure I get the best sleep I can. And then self-care. If you're a professional, especially a high performer, what does your self-care routine look like? Most of my clients who are exceptionally high performers um, have a team around them helping their lives. Wow. So, I mean, I'm certain I'm nowhere near as successful as the majority of my clients, but, you know, I have a personal trainer five days a week. I have a masseuse once a week. I have my own coach that I'm speaking to every two weeks. I right, have someone yeah. who helps with assisted stretching. I have, I do energy personal work every assistant. two weeks. Yeah, you I have a pers- yeah, personal system, but it's all of these things that yeah. I make sure that I'm doing the health and fitness. I'm, I'm trying to de-stress as much as possible so that it's less likely any of those emotional you know spikes are going to happen because if you're in a high stress situation you're likely to take it on on those you love if you if you reach a breaking point so totally i I would say that self-care is extraordinarily important and sort of the better you can be about your self-care the less likely you're going to hit those moments that you're describing but they're never going to zero like it's just you're a human it's it's life it's it's a beautiful acceptance of, about our um, potential to be a holes. You know, like we all yeah. have it. All We're of all going to do it. it. And, yeah, and I just think it's it, it's a gift to expect that 
what if somebody is whatever it is through addiction, maybe eating disorder, substance abuse, maybe um, codependency, maybe workaholism, maybe whatever the pattern is, blaming others in their life, victimhood, whatever the thing is that they know they're doing, not exercising, not sleeping, whatever, they know it, but they just like get stuck. What what are, you know, you've talked about, you know, put, implementing these incredible strategies to help, but what if they feel like an out of control, you know, runaway train and they're like, I don't even know how to start. Does, uh, I would I, say know, I'm barely, start with I'm something not really, thriving. start yeah. with something really, really basic. Okay, yeah. So, you know, if someone's, you know, in the absolute chaos of life, um, hey, you can go for a walk every morning for 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and yeah. get an easy win. Go for a walk outside. And, and get your easy win every day. Yeah. I mean, and they are. And it will improve your mood and life will get. And then the other things will be easier to start to slot in. But I would say if, you know, if anyone's having significant issues, you should be speaking to a therapist or counselor and, you know, as I say, we're more on the performance coach side. Um, but if you're finding this in your business or in your relationships and things, you know, certainly we have people who can help with that. Um, so I would always say the easiest way is working with a professional to help you. Um, but the first steps of self-care is there's always something you can do. Um, there's no one who can't sit quietly for five minutes and follow their breath. Like it doesn't matter how poor you are, how stressed you are. It is possible to sit quietly for five minutes a day and follow your breath. And that might be the key that then that de-stresses you enough to be able to do some of the other things and they will eventually start to build up. It's like the 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 momentum of life is running in one way or another, sort of towards the positive or towards the negative. And you want to get as many things, as much weight behind the ball, pushing towards the positive as you can. And if you're just flailing I think there is that victimhood of it's just impossible for me to do anything. Is is there's no one that it's impossible to do anything. Um, but you might not be able most people can't do all of it. And it's just where are you on the scale of, you know, where are we realistically in your life? It's how much self care can we fit in? But it as I say, sitting quietly and following a breath for five minutes, there is no cost to that. There is nobody who literally doesn't have five minutes and that get up five minutes earlier and you can do that. You know, it's, it's available. Yeah. So just implementing small wins, keeping your word to yourself, doing this thing, whether it's a walk or taking time to meditate or whatever it may be. I think that's really wonderful. Um, with your meditation, one of the things when you put us into this state, one of the things that I, you do is like a timeline experience where people go back and you kind of let the subconscious take you wherever it's going to go to this moment. Do you find that um, people are often surprised at what the thing is? Or is it something that they're kind of like cognitively like, oh, yeah. Like in your case, you didn't even have a memory of that experience yeah, so, with your grandpa. Yeah. So it's it's not always um, it, it's not always repressed. So I would say some percentage of it, people are unaware. Most of the time they have an awareness. Um, but But oftentimes they... They actually, they think it's the thing after the thing. So, hey, um, I know that my issues were caused by, let's say it's being bullied at school when, by a teacher when I was 12. Um, but the reason it was so painful that they had a mean teacher was because at six-year-old, something else happened. And it's it was the thing that had made them feel insecure in a moment if they're picked on. So oftentimes there's something before the thing that they think it is. And we have to work through all of those memories, but and and again, these aren't sometimes they're very traumatic things, and sometimes it's just conversations that a child's taken the wrong way, where a, a parent has snapped and said, you know, I never wanted to have you, or you were a mistake, um, and the parent has snapped in a single moment, and it's defined how that human has felt about themselves through life, and it was just their mom was super struggling in a moment, and she never wanted to say it, and she never really meant it. But she snapped because she was in, you know, the emotional cloud that you were just describing. But five-year-old you doesn't understand that it's an emotional crowd and cloud and can take that as something that they hold to their self-worth for the rest of their life. And, and that's the sort of stuff that we're looking for. Or, you know, someone stole their lunch. I mean, it's, it comes up in sessions. I've had, you know, guys in their 60s and 70s crying over their lunch being stolen in kindergarten. 
and they've they've held on to it forever because it was you know such this like i felt weak i felt i wasn't enough i felt a victim and they've held on to this i'm a victim i'm supposed to play the role of victim in life and you know and it, so it can be very subtle things that looking back as an adult you, you know, even after the session they have all this emotion they say, why was that the thing I, I don't know but it was um you know that's where you learn those feelings and then you just replay this program and our subconscious job is just to keep us safe so it's to keep us alive keep us safe and it learns these things in early childhood which like you said with evolution it's really useful to if there's a tiger and your mom screams to instantly become scared of tigers so from an evolutionary perspective it's a very good thing to pick up fears quickly in modern society it's not so good to pick up fears quickly so it's just it, it was a useful program now not so much and this is just a method where we can <laughs> yeah now now we have a method where we can get into those and make some changes that's so that's so helpful and useful you know for me one of the greatest acts and i always am surprised that it that it that it that i resist it or forget it or take it for granted but is my spirituality my belief in a divine entity of being for me it's jesus embodied in jesus and his story but whatever it is for somebody there's like this something outside of us some external force or like i know in the 12-step recovery program they they make sure that they have one of the fundamental things is you know surrendering to this this higher power Mm -hmm. this idea that there's something outside of us that's bigger and maybe it's a concept of love or um, the hope of humanity or you know for other people it's like for me it's a living god of a being that i can have a relationship with but whatever it is i'm always shocked that i um forget to go back to that surrendering go back to that source of love and like return to that home that feels the most joy and the most peace i i i'm just a I'm astounded by my inability to remember that that's the place I get free. Um, what what have you found in your journey? Do you find that if your clients and friends, I mean, you have all spectrum of people with different backgrounds, religious or spiritual, do you find that that's an ultimate hack? Is that something that's just my experience that that coming up with some external, I don't know, higher power, if you will, can be helpful? I, I mean, I've seen the 12 step be incredibly powerful for people with addiction. So certainly that has definitely worked for, for, a, lot, for a good number of people that I've spoken to. Um, I, I think from the spiritual, it really depends on your background. So I think it's incredibly powerful for people who come from a spiritual, spirit-based background. And, um, and for those who don't, um, I, I think sometimes just the Really, it's the same thing. It's the zooming out and seeing that you are not and your problems are not the center of the universe. Because effectively, that's what you're describing. You know, there is something bigger and greater than me. And my perhaps my problem that right now feels like a 10 out of 10 in the grand scheme of things isn't that big of a deal. And you, you don't need to necessarily be spiritual to see that we're, you know, we're smaller than an ant on, a, on the world on a universal scale, like... The things we're worrying about, you know, maybe we upset someone in the coffee shop or, you know, I don't know, I forgot to put the dishes away and my wife's angry and I'm feeling bad about it. You know, these things, like as you start to zoom out and sort of see, you know, I'm one of 8 billion people on the world at the moment um, making, <laughs> whether or not I make put the stuff away. in the dishwasher, it's not really a big it's, deal. Um, and, and I think it is that same thing of there is this, you know, if you can zoom out and sort of see, you know, everyone is a part of everyone and everything. Um, That's beautiful. You know, it's, we're all just in a bit of a game, I, I think. It's, it's like a, a, an interesting game that we get to experience for however long we're here. And, you know, these, these different emo emotions are part of the dance. And without all of the emotions and dramas and such, like, it would be a pretty boring life if it was just everything went our way. So, well, Elliot, I'm so grateful that I met you on this dance, this little game of life. You are such a gift. I'm, I love you and your family. And thank you so much for coming on the show today and all that you do to help people have the best possible experience here on this earth. So I, I really appreciate love you, brother. it. It a wonderful conversation. You too. Yeah. And um, yeah, have fun in Hawaii. Thanks, mate. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. 
Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitalfinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.